Well, hey up everyone, welcome to episode 3 of Yorkshire Gamers Reap Big War Games podcast. And uh, we'll be on to our interview soon with our guest, Dr. Chris Brown. Um, but before we do, it's our normal little um, bit of housekeeping at the start of the programme. And um, I'd like to once again thank you all for your continued support the episode one and two are now both up on youtube and on audio and episode one now is creeping towards 700 listens which i am well 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 pleased with um it seems to be going well across both the formats audio and uh, picking up more and more um listens or watches as it were whatever the case may be once it transfers across to the youtube so thanks once again for that very much appreciated and uh, if this is the first time you've listened into this podcast then welcome aboard and uh, give us a follow on podbean and uh, you never know you might get something free at uh, the end of this podcast I shall announce a little giveaway um, but first I'm just going to talk about our guest Dr Chris Brown and uh, I first came across Chris on his um, spit uh, Facebook page which is Stupid Projects in 28mm and uh, that's a perfect thing or title for somebody to be on a podcast about big games so I invited him on board and um, I didn't really realise um, um, that he was an historian and author with quite a large number of books to his name uh, mostly on medieval Scottish history and on the Arnhem battle in World War Two. I know a lot of uh, you out there will be big into your Arnhem uh, so if you if you haven't heard of him then just uh, google Dr Chris Brown historian books and um, yeah he knows his stuff this lad uh, so um, it's a great interview. It's a lot longer than normal, and I did um an hour about whether I should cut it down and take some stuff out. Uh, but uh, Chris is a lovely chap, very engaging guy, and he's got lots to say from the perspective as a, of an historian um, who is a war gamer, and uh, some interesting stuff uh, that he talks about. He, he he manages to have a go at a number of major. Uh, uh, people in Scottish history, which is quite funny, and you have to, have to listen to uh, one of the funniest Braveheart film reviews uh, you will ever hear. Um, so please stick with the podcast, I know it's long, uh, you know, even if you listen to it in uh, a couple of sections, but I think Chris is well worth listening to. And um, towards the end of the podcast, um, I want to speak to Chris about a topic, uh, I speak to him about a big game um, series uh, or a big game uh, event that he's holding in Arnhem uh, in September this year, obviously COVID permitting, and he's got lots of really, really big and interesting um, Arnhem-based games going on there, and uh, I think uh, if you can get out or support it, I think it's a really, really good thing. And as I said uh, earlier on, there's a little bit of a giveaway, so 
keep listening or if, if you're really cheeky just shoot shoot to the end and uh, listen to the outro and um, I'll, I'll uh, fill you in on how you can get a chance of getting your hands on some freebies so here comes the interview Well, hello everyone. Welcome to uh, the third episode and the third interview of um, the Yorkshire Gamers Reap Big War Games podcast. And today, I'm very glad to say we've got a guest, Dr. Chris Brown. And Chris is an historian and author with many books to his name and uh, focusing on medieval Scottish history and the fight around Arnhem in World War II, plus many others. He's a wargamer of many years and a former member of the Shetland Islands War Games Club. So he holds the current Yorkshire game record for the most northerly guest. Uh, welcome to the show, Chris. Nice to be here. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. The first thing we like to do is to get people's history, uh, Chris. Um, but we like to do it very quickly in four minutes. Uh, is that something you can do? Well, well, give it a shot. I see that's what you like to do. But like, <laughs> like you, I'm part of the Airfix generation. Uh, I got my first packet of Airfix soldiers when I was about four. That was the Union Infantry. And I think they must have been just newly released then. And I never really looked back. So I've, over the years, acquired ridiculous quantities of Airfix plastic soldiers and uh, was always keen, made up my own really useless rules, as indeed I still do. <laughs> and, um, and, and it was always there. It was just always something in the background. And when I was 11, I went to the uh, military academy, the army boarding school at Dunblane. If you... If you imagine a, a full-time cadet force with a with a kind of third-rate school attached to it, that's that's not far off, you know. In in the way that Sandhurst is a a good a, a good TA unit with a bad university stuck on the side, they're pretty much along the same way. And the the officers and senior NCOs who are our, our teachers and instructors, they mostly, in fact, universally, they all fought in, in World War II or, you know, or, and or Korea or Cyprus or anywhere. And it was all kind of part of my life. But I, I come from an army family anyway. Um, my father was a padre to, to para in the early 1950s. So seeing as they were um, career soldiers, a lot of what we might think of as the, the Arnhem characters, like John Frost and uh, RSM Lloyd and so on, they were still in the army. You know, it was only six, seven, eight years later. Um, so I kind of I grew up with these as household names, if you like. So the Arnhem battle has always been particularly interesting to me. I am a sad, pathetic Arnhem geek <laughs> to, the extent, to the extent that for reasons which are not entirely clear to me, I just bought a few fragments of a horse glider from uh, from from yeah from <laughs> from landing zone at, at Bullpazy. Uh, yeah, it is, it is pretty sad. Um, we'll come back to that, I'm sure, because we, we have a, an Arnhem event uh, in September, which um, I'd like to think some of your listeners would like to hear about. Hmm. But other than that, I am just a war game animal. And unlike most people, I'm, most war gamers, I'm lucky enough to be married to another war game animal, which, which suits me fine. So uh, other people in a house like this would have a lounge. We don't. We've got a war game room. 
what, what would we want a lounge for anyway? We've got a kitchen. You can sit in that. That's brilliant, Chris. Uh, well, you've you've come quite a bit under, but I'm sure we've got a lot to cover around quite a thing. Oh, I, I can be endless. I can be endlessly <laughs> tedious about this. Um, well, we're, just, we're, just tell us. We're going to talk about big games later, but yeah, big, I, I yeah. did big games when I was at boarding school, and, mm. and sometimes adjudicated by uh, or watched over by the retired officers who were some of our teachers and instructors. That was interesting. But I didn't really start running big games until we moved to Shetland, where I have to say we no longer live. We moved, yeah. we moved back yeah. down to Fife. And that's where it all really happened, because we are really not the sort of people who go to war game clubs. Hmm. We've, we've only found them in two categories, loathsome or really, really loathsome. But when we moved to Shetland, I thought, well, there's a war game club. I have to go and show my face. And it was not like any other war game club I've ever been to. So... Um, welcoming and proactive and it was just absolutely fab and because we had big collections and because we like big games I started running big games there and it just became a Shetland thing you know there's a dozen or so people eight or ten of, of any of them could easily be dragooned bullied whatever <laughs> into taking part <laughs> in all kinds of big games um, Ameri largely American Civil War or World War II because that was the big collections we had and it's just something we've done done since then, you know. So just tell everyone, um, you mentioned um, you've got a, a home set up, Chris. Um, just mention or just describe to uh, the listeners um, what your gaming space is like at home. It's like a modest-sized sitting room, except the whole the middle of the space is taken up with a war games table. So we have uh, a 10-foot by 5-foot table and... All the, or not all, a large proportion of the scenery and so on gets stored underneath that, which of course means you know where anything is when you can't find it. It's right in the middle of underneath the table, where it's <laughs> as impossibly difficult to get at as you can ever imagine. Because I think you've, you're, yeah. you're a great advantage in that you've got um, a living war gamer as well. <laughs> is that correct? Ab ab absolutely. The... Uh, Lockdown hasn't really affected us. Hmm. When we moved away from Shetland for a year, a year ago and more, um, we, we never we went to one or two local clubs here, and and that's fine. They're lovely in their own way, and it's but it just wasn't really our sort of thing. So we just play at home ourselves anyway, and um, therefore lockdown hasn't much affected us. Hmm. Um, but partly. We just find clubs a bit tedious in the main, to be honest. Not always, but often, and a bit cliquey, and it's just not our sort of thing. But also, we, we, we're we very history-orientated in our games. So the kind of games that are ordinary to war gamers, say for World War II, it's you know contact engagements of a kind that virtually never happen in real life. In real life, one side's going forward and the other side's going backward. That's how engagements happen. That's the kind of engagements we play. So we we kind of discovered bolt action kind of by accident. And the first time we played it, it's hard to say which of us hated it more than the others. I think I hated it a bit more because I'm more immersed in history. On the other hand, we did find that it's a very robust system. And if you take a good sized stick and just hammer it yeah. for a while, you can make it really surprisingly, remarkably, historical 
and our our game, the game as we play it, sort of progressed further and further away. For for a while, what we what we play, we called Albleba, short for a little bit like bolt action. <laughs> so you've uh, treated it, you've treated it like a. Uh, a piece of molten steel and uh, all malleable and you've smashed it in at either ends and you've got somewhere, yeah. somewhere near what you like as a, as a rule set. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the history geek inside me cannot be extinguished. Yeah. So the, um, what people think of as a skirmish war game from World War II, hmm. unless it's one, 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 one figure activating at a time, it's not really a skirmish war game. Hmm. If it's a platoon level game, which they tend to be, especially in 28 mil, the, the, the tool of the trade, so to speak, is the squad or the, or the rifle section. That's what does it. And then you find, and this happens with any set of rules, people develop armies for winning rather than armies that reflect yeah. history. So what have we got here? Oh, these are my uh, Maori Gurkha paratroopers. Mm. There you there you are. What? Is there my Maura Gurkha SS Knight Templar with 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 glider borne firefly tanks yep. and a, a flamethrower in each section, and everybody's got a Tommy gun except for the snipers. I've got four snipers. You've got what? You're like, oh my god, you know, um, especially American snipers, really. So that would be the American Sniper School that started in 1948. <laughs> one, of the, one of the lesser known parts of World yeah. War II. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've got an army that's got a platoon of infantry with three five-man squads. Hmm. Well, if you're a platoon commander, if you've got three five-man squads, what you turn them into is one 15-man squad. Hmm. That's how you do it. Yeah. And you make a gun group with two or three LMGs and everybody else is in the rifle group. Well, what makes you think that, Chris? Well, because the guys who instructed me back in the 60s, who had been at war in the 40s and 50s, that's how they did it. <laughs> um, I'm always fascinated by people who tell me about things like, like, like bolt action, the bolt action rifle, your, your, mm. your number four Lee Enfield 303 rifle, and they tell me all about it. And so have you, have you ever handled one? Well, no, I've seen, yeah. I've seen one in a museum. Yeah. Okay. So you've never handled one, you've never stripped it, you've never cleaned it, you've never fired it. No, and neither of you. Well, actually, yes, I have. Yeah. I've done this a great deal. I'm even slightly deaf from a cold afternoon in Whitestone Range, where an extremely nice and very skilled CSM decided he'd take me up to sort out my problems with shooting. At the end of the <laughs> afternoon, at the end of the afternoon, in total exasperation, he said, you know what, you're right, you really cannot shoot. There's no reason for it. I've got great eyesight. I've got yep. strong hands. I'm not the least bit weapon shy. I just cannot shoot. But that's how I was trained to. And I can't. I can't bear the. Oh well, I've got three sections, and one machine gun, and one mortar, and one anti-tank gun, and one tank. And life doesn't work that way. That's hmm. that's not how it's not how armies work. So we've ended up with our own system, which bears some relation to bolt action. But that relationship now is we've got a bag that you pull order tits from. That's that's the limit of the. That's kind of it. Now. That's all you've left. That's that's all that's left. I'm afraid. <laughs> and almost all of our games, I would say, are company and attack, platoon and defence. And in 28 mil, a lot of people would consider that a big game. Mm. You know, because you've got 
100 plus figures on one side, 30 plus figures on the other side. And a lot of people would see that as a big game. A lot of people would think of that as something that needs a big table. Mm. But actually, it really, really doesn't. If you have, if you en envisage a bit of um, a, a bit of real estate filled with houses, you know, like an ordinary commoner mm. garden street with, you know, a dozen houses on either side, that's not a platoon and skirmish action battlefield. Mm. If one side of that is the objective, then the attacking force really needs to be a company because that's how these things happen, guys. It's, so it's so have you, you have cross, uh, cross the street. Have you been able to try these rule sets out on anybody else apart from your from your wife? Is it is it Pat? Um, is it Pat? Pat yeah, yeah. No, Pat, Pat, it, I, I'm good. Pat, our, our rule set is just as much Pat's fault as it is mine. <laughs> I'm not going to take complete responsibility. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, we have to some extent. Before we left Shetland, we were. Um, experimenting with the basic mechanics with people at the club. They're very patient people. I don't know how they put up with this, quite mm. honestly, but, you know, they did. And, and that, that worked fine. But for us, the, the target is to have a fast game. Again, we don't aim to play in real time because what does that mean anyway? Mm. You know, um, what happens on a war game table, say like a bolt action game, just can lots of people will be familiar with that, or a rapid fire game, what happens on your war game table? Although you may have, oh, well, each turn represents five minutes. But if you're looking at this as an event that has happened historically, it might have taken 15 minutes. It might have taken 15 hours. You know, a yeah. lull in the battlefield might be 30 seconds. It might be half an hour. And because we're representing an event in a war game, not really rather than a passage of time, it, it should be pretty redundant anyway. We shouldn't really be thinking about what is the real-time scale here? Apart from anything else, however big your war game table is and whatever figure scale you're using, you know, 15 mil, 28 mil, 54 mil, a jeep can cavil from one corner to the opposing corner in 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah unless, unless you've got a war game table the size of a cricket pitch, and very, very few people do, and mm. um, you're pretty much stuck with that. And if people are weird about this sort of thing, and we're sometimes overcritical about it. So um, ranges is, is one of my favorite things. People are obsessed with ranges and rates of fire. Hmm. Uh, I think that's one of the uh, main criticisms I'm aware of when it comes to bolt action. A lot of people talk about um, a Pegasus bridge gift set or box set that they brought out and the rifles couldn't fire from one end of the, the bridge to the other. Is that the sort of thing yeah. you're, you're talking about? Well, in, in a way, that's, 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 yes, that, and but also the other thing. For one thing, the Pegasus Bridge action starts in the night. Mm. Nobody can fire from one end of the bridge to the other. Rather, you can fire, but you can't see the target. See, see what you're firing at, yeah. Yeah, of course, in my, in my case, it doesn't make any difference. You know. <laughs> up, up at 100 yards, I will hit that man-sized target every time, but at 200 yards, he's safe from me. There's yeah. no danger I'm going to hit him. And most people actually shoot pretty badly. Mm. Most people shoot much more badly in real life, you know, in, in the combat area, than on the range. Mm. The things that people achieve, achieve on the range are, are not normal in combat because you don't see the other guy. Yeah. Um, I have done this as a practical demonstration. I, I've taken people for like walk and talk stuff around battlefields and so on. People think you can easily see somebody 100 yards away. 
Now here's an experiment worth, worth doing if you get the opportunity. Go with your pal to a soccer pitch, or if you're men, a rugby pitch. <laughs> Sorry, I can't resist it. Is that is that rugby league? I'm, I'm perfectly happy with rugby uh, league, if it happens. Yeah. Um, league or union, I like them both. Rug, rugby union is known as kick and clap where we come from. Uh... <laughs> I, I can I can I can see I can see why. In, in, our, in, in our house, we usually call soccer netball. Ah, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, that's a good one. Somebody, somebody gave me a row about that recently because they said no, it's not as tough as netball. Netball's for tough people. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Go to go go to a, a rugby pitch, obviously. Yeah. Go any a, a nice big bit of flat ground, and get your pal to go and stand at the other end. So you're 100 yards away from each other, give or take. Right? You can see each other perfectly well. Now get your pal to lie down. You have to shout loudly, but get them to lie down. Yeah. If you can see them at all, you're doing okay. But there's a good chance you won't be able to see them. Now you lie down. There is no danger at all that you can see them 100 yards away. Hmm. Just because you're lying down. Your horizon just got cut to perhaps 20 yards because yeah. you're lying down. So... The ranges that we operate with in, on war game tables suddenly start to look a bit more realistic and reasonable when you think that you can hardly ever see anybody 200 yards away. And even, and even on the flattest surface you can imagine, you know, a football pitch, even there. So if you're out in the woods or something, no danger. Um, there's a guy, uh, Paul Walker, has War HQ sort of... Um, a, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a kind of video thing like like we're doing just now, a video yeah. call. Um, he, he took me up on this as a challenge and went out, in, went, went out into uh, country, out in the streets in, in, in a park with his uh, with his son to try it out because he thought that can't be right. And then ran another piece saying, you know what, that history bloke, Chris Brown, he was quite right as it happened. <laughs> by, by incredible fluke, I happened to know the bit of ground that they were doing this on. Mm. Paul's talking to Cameron, he said, well, you know, my boy's over there, he's, he's 100 yards away and I, I really can't see him. But actually, I know that bit of ground. He's no more than 70 yards away. And he wasn't even wearing, you know, something green or grey. He's wearing a white shirt and you still really couldn't see him. Mm. So we are very, very picky about these things in a way that makes no sense. There are aspects that do make sense for so well you know, you can't hit stuff with a submachine gun 200 yards away you're damn right you really really can't hmm. trust me you really at least i can't <laughs> um, but that's not what it's for and most of your combat um general marshall and others have made this observation in the past that most combat happens at within really 150 yards hmm. actually probably half of that is closer to the closer to the truth and the use of uh, usage of um, exhaustion of ammunition compared to what did you hit is kind of a useful indicator here. Mm. Um, Also, when you're reading people's accounts of being in battle, you have to remember that they do this thing a lot, this thing that historiographers call telling lies and making it up as we go along. (laughs) People do that all the time. Sometimes quite consciously, sometimes not so consciously, but it's what it's what people do. And you have to remember they're looking back on something 
at a time when they weren't really taking notes. They were too busy being scared, mm. which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. I spent a fair amount of my life being scared one way or another. <laughs> and um, I, I used to have a weird job which involved hanging out of roofs and stuff like that. Trust yeah. me, I've been scared, scared a lot, you know. Yeah. So people say there's, you know, there's, there's no atheists in the trenches like hell. Of course there are. People are too busy, far too busy being frightened to think about God. <laughs> yeah. I, I certainly was. So ranges, exhaustion of ammunition, what we can actually do with the weapon in our hand. Um, board game rules make things far too lethal. Far too many people on the war game table die. In, in practice, the, the practical reality is, astonishingly, in almost all engagements, in, in all of history, the most common experience is survival without a scratch. So you think when it's you read, more of a morale issue than a than a firepower issue? Ab, ab, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Um, to take Arnhem as an example, because you know it's it's I'm an Arnhem geek, and it, but it's it's quite a useful example for in lots of ways. You seldom you seldom get to see a divisional battle in isolation. Mm. So and and it's so well recorded. I mean, there's more than a hundred published personal accounts just in English. So it's it's you know, there's a tremendous amount of information now. Everybody knows it's a huge disaster for the British and, and enormous casualties. Um, kind of, kind of enormous casualties. There's 2,000 people killed, which in a divisional battle is, is a huge number. Mm. 2,000 people killed over nine days. Um, so what, that's about 230 a day? But it's in a particularly compressed and particularly busy battle environment. Almost everybody's experience who survives the Iron Battle on, on the British side is being a prisoner of war. Mm. Well, that, that's the common experience. Out of whatever, 10,000 odd people, 6,000 of them will become POWs. That's, in a sense, a more, um, a, a more natural and, and commonplace experience. So the way we look at it for our board game rules, what is notionally a close attack. We think in terms of being, it's not a matter of these number of people were killed, it's this number of people were killed or captured, or most commonly ran away and that's the last you saw of them for mm. the day. Yeah. And that's the that's an a properly common experience. Same as firefights, um, most people don't do anything in a firefight. Mm. Most people, get their head down and try and look busy. You know, yeah. you think of in terms of the reactions of, of, of flight or fight, mm. but that's not, the, neither of those is necessarily the two most common reactions. There's flight and fight and freeze, but better, bigger than all of those probably is fuss. Look we try busy. to look, look busy. Look, look busy. <laughs> look, look, look busy, yeah, yeah. Now, if you can find somebody who's never done that at their work, I will buy you a pint. I, everybody I, does that. I've got people at work who have made a career out of that entirely. Yeah. What's distressing <laughs> is very often they make really good careers because they never got anything wrong. Yeah. Because they, they always look they never, busy. They always look busy as well. They look busy, but they, since they didn't actually do anything, they didn't do anything that was wrong yep. and it didn't stick out. Very um, true. I got I got a lot of flack for writing basically that in, in a, a, an introduction to, to war theory book. Yeah. Um, and, and the flack I got 
from the people I got it from just made me more securely happy that what I'd written was quite right. <laughs> well, that, that's a good, that's that's the main thing. Do you game? Yeah, we've talked a lot about Arnhem, Chris. Do, do you, you've done a lot of books on um, Bannockburn and, and medieval Scottish history. Is that a period that you game as well? Not really. Um, mm. We we have done a bit, and for a while, because my friends in, in Shetland helped by beautifully painting figures. We had an absolutely lovely collection for it. The problem is, it's a very, very boring period to play. Yeah. Almost all, almost all the fighting and the fighting that wins the wars is, is nothing to do with big battles. Hmm. There's 70 years of the wars of independence. There's six general engagements, one every decade. <laughs> it's, not exactly, it's not exactly the big time, yeah. but the normal day on day business of war is to do with small parties of men-at-arms and what you think of as knights in armour. Hardly mm. any of them are knights, but men-at-arms. They do virtually all the fighting. Almost all of the actions, and there's masses of them, are small clashes between remarkably small parties of men-at-arms, even quite well-known battles. Um, Roslyn, which somehow has become reinvented into a battle with a, a manoeuvre with thousands and thousands of people, actually is an action between perhaps as many as two or 300 men at arms on either side, probably half of that. And that's a significant action. Hmm. And it's only a couple of hundred people. You know, that's, that's <laughs> the nature of it. Uh, it's, it's one of these things that people tell me about. People tell me all about medieval wars. It's absolutely brilliant. I imagine it's because they nearly read a book once. I was going to say that, Chris. Obviously, I think the vast majority of war gamers would consider themselves to be, um, and I'm not suggesting any degree of success with this, uh, but most of them would suggest that they are some form of amateur historian. Um, and you are a proper historian, if I can say that, um, and a gamer. Um, how do those two um, sort of... Um, professions meet or interests meet if you like um I, i'm as much inclined to be um snippy about this as anybody else but actually there's quite a lot of fairly decent history goes mm. on around board gamers more more now than in the past in, mm. in in my experience but then you know i've been playing board games a long time yeah. so i would say more now than than any time in the past there are weak areas um but you could make exactly the same point the other way around. Historians, uh, and again, historiographers have a technical term for this. Historians aren't good at dealing with conflict. In fact, the technical term that historiographers use is shite. <laughs> they, are, they are appallingly bad at dealing with conflict to, the, to, to this extent. Um, in fact, this is what made me write a, a, an introductory book to, to war theory. I mean, a real sort of utter basics, you know, kind of this is how you fill your petrol tank with the car sort of basic, was I was giving a paper at a, a conference down in England somewhere, and uh, it was a summer conference, so it's all academics, it's not an undergraduate in sight, it's all, you know, postgrad students, lecturers, professors, blah, 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 and I, I started my paper by asking three questions. First question was, is there anybody here who has never, ever written about conflict? And they all sat there with their arms crossed, feeling smug, because of course they have. Hmm. It might have been an essay 20 years ago, but yeah, they have. Yeah. Uh, you're sure? No articles, no papers, no essays, no books. 
if you, any of you written about, yeah, they've all written about conflict. Okay, that's fine. Second question, has anybody here ever read a war theory textbook? Nobody flinched because none of them have, <laughs> not one. Third question, do we think there's a problem in writing about a topic when we have not bothered to equip ourselves with basic building block knowledge? Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a room full of people get really angry with you in one split second. Oh, yes. <laughs> if it's not happened to you, it's well impressive. And if it has happened to you, you know exactly what I mean. And by the time I got to the end of the paper, they'd all come round, except for this one bloke who came storming up and was really, really angry. I thought he was going to smack me, but when he got close, he realised he only came up to my shoulder. So, um, <laughs> so I, I, I wasn't unduly worried, you know. But they really are appalling. Um, I used to teach a war theory class for a while um, to, to mature students. It's absolutely the best teaching experience you ever have. There's this thing in Scotland, um, uh, OLL, Office of Lifelong Learning, and yeah. every college and university has to do this thing for you know, access for older students or students that have difficulties, you know, their jobs don't let them go to normal time classes and stuff like that. And it's, it's a great thing. So I would start each session of running this class, students would come in, I'd have loads of stuff written on a blackboard behind a cloth. And the stuff written would be things like uh, uh, God's on the side of the big battalions, history is written by the winners, um, cannon fodder, all these sorts of things. I take the cloth down. Everybody know these words and phrases? Yes, yes, we do. Good. None of them is to appear in an essay that you write for this class because they are all <laughs> They are all in the category that historiographers call bollocks. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Um, but it's true, they're, they're, they're all nonsense mm. and, and, and self-evidently nonsense as soon as you start to scratch at them. But people like to believe things that are convenient to believe. Um, Is that coming, Chris, from, I'm thinking particularly Arnhem with the, uh, the film A Bridge Too Far? Um, you know, myself included, I remember watching that film as a teenager and, and it's had a remarkable impact on my thinking about that battle, and I'm sure it has for a lot of people, is people's um, conception of these types of, of battles and wars coming from the likes of Braveheart and um, and Bridge Too Far? They, they, yes, they, they certainly are. This is not always a bad thing. Um, Bridge Too Far has its weaknesses, but chaps, it's a movie, it's not a documentary. Mm. And it's fairly solid, really. Um, it would be done better now because you'd be able to borrow better looking German tanks, for example, <laughs> because they do actually exist, you know, yeah. um, and, and they existed then, but nobody knew where to find them. Well, these things happen, but visually it's not bad, really. Um, the general, general strain of the story is, is, is not bad. Um, and the combat scenes are re reasonably convincing you know um the drop zones and the, the drop zone shots and so on it, it, it's all really well done for what you could do hmm. you could do it better now because you've got great cgi and stuff and the band of brothers would be an, you know, an example yeah. of the sort of thing you can do and it's great you do get the other thing which is um uh, a brave part now for my money the best bit in brave part is when the spaceships Brings a leak. <laughs> Tom Hanks thinks they're going to run out of oxygen before they get back to 
But that might not be Braveheart. No, but uh, it's, it's uh, sim okay. similar it, historical it, accuracy for medieval Scotland. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I, 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 I thought it was a film about Taiwanese bus conductors. I've obviously <laughs> missed something. Yeah, it's, it's seriously crap, but only in every possible way. Yeah. There's one historically sound moment. Mel Gibson's standing there in the pouring rain and he says, this is Scottish weather. Okay, I'll give you that. You know, yeah. There's not really much I can say against it. Although actually, even that's not as not not as convincing as you might like to think, because um, well, the whole of Europe had a slightly warmer and uh, and less rainy <laughs> weather pattern in the early 13, late 1200s, early 1300s than it does now. So even that bit, I've only discovered this recently. Even that bit is rubbish. It, it honestly is that bad. Everything from you know, the battle scenes. Here's Sterling Bridge without yeah. a bridge and, and without <laughs> Sterling. So, so that was a good start. And the, the costumes are wrong. The weapons are wrong. The history is just absolutely appalling. Um, and these, these things happen. You're, you're, you're stuck with it. Uh, once it's made, it's made. Um, I saw the movie Patriot when it first came out. And I don't know anything about the American War of Independence. But my pal, who's a big uh, Revolutionary War war buff uh, over in Virginia, uh, he, he wanted to kill people. Because it's, <laughs> it's, such, it's such a bad film. So he wanted to start with Mel Gibson and work his way down through everybody else, you know. And there are two people who were... The, the Braveheart didn't have any advisors. None. Yeah. There was no historical advisor at all. Um there was a there was a more recent there was a more recent film, um, Outlaw King, um, about Robert it's the Bruce. Much better. It, yeah. It's much much better. Um, it would have to be much much better. Uh, you know, any medieval movie that didn't involve racing cars would be better. Yeah. Almost automatically. <laughs> um, I, I cast in on it quickly by writing a a very short, uh, you know, introduction to Robert the Bruce type book, which yeah. I think was called. Actually, I can't remember what it was called. It was just the um, the publisher was on, on the phone with me one day. He says, oh, this, this film's coming out. How quickly can you do a book of 30,000 <laughs> words on Robert the Bruce? I said, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm considered fairly expert on this. I think I can do it reasonably rapidly, but I'm not really interested. And then they said, well, there's money involved. I said, well, oh, well in that case, definitely. yeah. Definitely no, no question at all. <laughs> Uh, they did, did, did reasonably well, you know. I can't can't complain. It, it probably brought another war game army or two. Yeah, it, that, it, uh, it certainly felt a lot more gritty and a lot more um, historical. I don't know. I'm trying to think, yeah, think of the right it, word. There's, there's a couple of less Hollywood. There's couple, yeah, there's a couple of really stupid bits. I think just I, I can't even remember why. Um, <laughs> at, at, at the end. Uh, Edward II's present at uh, a uh, battle at the end. The battle at the end is not well presented, but medieval battles never are. Hmm. Um, for reasons beyond human understanding, film directors think a medieval battle is 100 people hacking away at each other with sticks in individual combats. Of course, hmm. that's really not how it worked. Chaps, you know? <laughs> Keeping a close formation with close formation troops is kind of crucial to the success of you know, close formation troops sort of how it works really you know well um, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully one day they'll come to you chris with um for to be the the show oh, good God, advisor no 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 no, 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 no. Never, 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 
never, never get an expert. Um, no, no. <laughs> they, uh, they, they rebuilt the Bannockburn Exhibition Centre recently. There's myself and a guy called Michael Brown, who's a professor at St Andrews University. We are, no, I, I can't obey Michael. He screwed me up really badly once, but he's a great scholar. He yeah. really is a very great scholar. He really knows his stuff. They didn't ask me and they didn't ask Michael. Yeah, uh, I'm not disgusted with him, but I would bet you he would say exactly the same, same thing to you. We, we don't like each other, but he'd be saying, uh, they didn't want me and they didn't want Chris Brown. Who, who the hell did they want, you know? And <laughs> we're, 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 we would say the things that people didn't want to hear. Yeah. So um, that's, that's a big bit of historiography, historiology, mm. is people don't want to hear stuff that is in conflict with what they want to believe. Mm. So um, the Somme's a good example of that. 60,000 British soldiers killed on the first day of the Somme. If you pick up a particularly bad book, it will actually very likely say 60,000 English soldiers killed on the first day of the <laughs> yeah. Somme. Yeah. Okay, well, we can break that down a little bit. For a start, they're British soldiers, apart from the ones that are Canadians and Australians and mm. blah, 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 blah. And there's 60,000 casualties. I mean, it's not the same thing as 60,000 no. killed by a long shot. It's 20,000 killed, give or take, which is a distressing number, but not as big as Waterloo. Yeah. That's a different way of looking at it. Mm. And it's 20,000 out of, I don't know, half a million, 600,000 people in the operation, maybe more. Yeah. At that point, do we consider that heavy casualties or do we just consider it actually relatively trivial casualties? Mm. Of course, you take the next step on and think, well, almost all the casualties are in the infantry. And of those, say, I'm guessing, say 600,000 people in the operation, probably only maybe a third of them are infantrymen. Hmm. In that case, you're back to it being huge casualties. But hmm. in relation to what? Um, so people hear what they want to hear. And if they hear stuff they don't like, they really just, they really just, um, I don't have a word for it. Um, they censor it to, to Yeah, they don't, they don't engage in... People tend to get in bubbles with the people who believe the same things that they believe. And it yeah. stifles discussion, uh, which is um, which is not a good thing in, in, in many ways. Um, one of the things I like to speak to on these podcasts, Chris, with, with the guests, is what I call the Venn diagram of wargaming. Do you remember Venn diagrams? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Excellent. So if you... I'm, I'm going to add... <laughs> you had a moment a moment of doubt there didn't you you said Venn diagrams and you thought off he doesn't know well, what no, a Venn diagram is uh, yeah we well, see I'm an I'm an engineer and I've been an engineer all my life maths and that sort of thing has just come naturally to me and then a little flash went through my brain thinking Chris is a historian will he know about Venn diagrams but so I do apologize if I... <laughs> no, not at all not at all <laughs> so um so yeah I like to think or and I think with yourself, I'm going to have to bring a fourth sort of circle into the Venn diagram. So normally, we, you have um, people who are war gamers, you have mm -hmm. people who are painters, you have people who are figure collectors, and in your own particular case, and I think to be honest with all all of us, um, people are historians to some degree as well. And each person, the way that those sectors of the Venn diagram cross over each other. Um, differ quite considerably so I'm I put myself quite firmly in the painter category um, and painter collector 
bit of historian and a bit of gamer. Um, which way is there a way of disguise? I think you don't do a lot of painting, do you, Chris? None. None. Absolutely none. So that's, that's that I'm part of the Venn diagram's it. gone. So <laughs> we're just last left with collector, wargamer, and historian. How do those three things yeah. fit together? Yeah, well, but I, I'm in, in a sort of subgroup entitled Idiot That Pushes Toy Soldiers <laughs> Around the Table. <laughs> the only subgroup entitled Idiot. Um, yeah. Wargamer and historian, there's not... There's, there's not really as much overlap as as, as you might think generally. Now, mm. we're, we've been developing our own rules and it's, it's still ongoing. And they are kind of historian-orientated rules. Mm. So it's really about um, pressure and suppression, morale, rather than casualties. And I can promise you that this is a game that virtually nobody would want to play. Yeah. We like to play it because we are history geeks and it, it, it fits with what's interesting to us and at least how we perceive combat to have been. But since neither of us have been in combat and it's not likely to happen, I hope, um, that it's, a, it's an external judgment. Now, I can say, well, I've read endless quantities of personal accounts of people being in com conflict, which I certainly have, and fairly endless amounts of... Um, in training material um, and conclusions of research into training material and combat and blah, blah, blah. And I have, I've read masses of this sort of stuff. How much good it does me in terms of the analysis that, that I have reached, the conclusions that I've come to, um, that's, that's always going to be totally subjective, hmm. which in a way brings us back to war game rules. Everybody who plays a particular set of war game rules, pretty much anyway, likes to think that the set that they have adopted is more realistic historically than another set. Um, but that's a very questionable judgment, to say the least. And there's also a question of to what extent do we want a balance of what's historically credible and what's a game that we can actually play? Um, there's a game called Advanced advanced squad leader a board oh, game. Oh, I, oh my god yes <laughs> i'm told that if you printed out and i believe it because i've seen lots of supplements if you printed out all the rules for advanced squad leader in an a4 just on a4 paper it would give you a stack 18 inches tall mm. it's one of those things so, that if you lay it end to end it goes to the moon i think it's one of those yeah. <laughs> no if that's what you want to do i think that's delightful i think it's yeah. lovely but is it the game you want to be playing? Mm. For me, no. The game I want to be playing is, um, for World War II, is the company-level game because that's what I find the interesting level of battle. Um, it's the point. It, it's the lowest point at which you, can, you have a self-contained unit that is not a squad. A squad yeah. or a section can be self-contained in battle if it's out on a patrol mm. by itself which is a thing that happens on an everyday yeah. basis, you know. Therefore, you can have that isolated fight and identify it as a thing in itself. Anything beyond that, you know, we have the platoon. The platoon's never really an operative thing by itself. It's an operative thing in the context of another two platoons, mm. maybe three platoons, and this and that and the next thing. Um, you know, it's back to the war game army that's got 
a platoon and a field gun and a medium machine gun and a mortar and a armored car. Like, guys, stop it. Just behave yourselves. Doesn't work that way, you know. The platoon's, think, going to, the, the platoon's going to attack this farmsteading. Mm. It's a farmsteading. It's not a platoon-sized objective. It's a company-sized objective. Do you think that um, as time goes by, um, and I'm thinking particularly in reference to World War II, that the people of certainly of my generation, my grandparents were in the war, um, so I have not first-hand experience of the fighting, but first-hand experience of speaking to them. Uh, people who were involved that as time goes by and people don't have that experience um, there becomes less um, reverence if you like for the the period and it becomes more of a game than uh, an historical action a lot of people come into gaming now from fantasy and science fiction and, and don't seem to have the the desire to be historically accurate um, uh, the short answer is yes. Yeah. Um, the questions that people ask are a dead giveaway. Um, I want to start playing rapid fire. What faction is best? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, 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 that just gave it away. You know? <laughs> uh, that, that your interest in, in the period is limited enough that you don't understand that World War II is something that did actually happen. Yeah. You know, there, there are no armoured paratrooper Nepalese elves in World War II. Damn, I'm going to have to throw oh, them away now. I've got some. <laughs> how, how, how nicely did you paint them? Oh, brilliant. It's a really nice paint job, you know. Um, I, I got um, slagged off for pictures of a, an army that I bought recently of um, the Chinese troops in the 1930s, and somebody was, was a bit nippy. Oh, we've obviously not done much research. Well, I bought it intact. I hadn't done any research at all. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when I say at all, I really mean silch because this is me beginning to find out about the practicalities of the war in China in the 1930s. Mm. Um, it was just a beautifully painted army. It was a really good price. And how much do I care if there's something silly in it? Well, actually, in our <laughs> rules, it won't much matter. A soldier is a soldier. You know, for, for our rules, the, 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 the operative item is the, the squad as a thing. It's, we don't break it down beyond that, you know. Well, how do you know if the guy with the light machine gun's been shot? Um, I've trained for this. If the guy with the light machine gun gets shot, somebody, somebody else picks, picks it up. up. Yeah. That's, that's, that's how it works, you know. Uh, what if the weapon is damaged? Well, the chances of the weapon being damaged are incredibly tiny. Yeah. We just take that as part of the function of the power of the squad has been reduced. It's, so, although it's yes. all a bit, it's all a bit arbitrary, and you're providing a, a a a sort of given level of firepower to a squad from this country or that type of unit or that country and the other type of unit. Like, yes, we are, mm. but if you know another way of doing it, let me know. <laughs> but, we'll patent it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I can I can promise you that people who study this for a job have not been able to come to conclusions about that, and yeah. I don't study it for a job, so. Um, I'm willing to go with, yes, arbitrary is what we can do, because even if we did have experience in World War II combat, and kind of clearly we don't, mm. but even if we did, our experience would be our experience. It's not a general experience. So although the shape of a squad and how it's armed, in the case of a, a, a British or Indian or Australian squad, it's, it's the same, mm. Whether the squad is fighting in Italy or France or Burma makes a huge difference. It's not, yeah. sim it's not as simple as it's this many people and they've got this kind of kit. 
it depends very much where they are, mm. who are they fighting, and what's the environment in which they're fighting. So is it arbitrary? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't really, don't really see another option. Some things that's that's not the case. Mm. Um, war game rules. I have never encountered a set of war game rules that make any sense at all of a medium mortar, you know, an eighty-one millimeter mortar, a three-inch mortar, but only never. And I've looked at a lot of war game rules, <laughs> and none of them, none of them make any sense. Mm. Um, if you've got a spotter, and if you don't have a spotter, you're not your mortars aren't in action. Mm. You know, because if your mortars can mortar platoon can see the enemy, it means your mortar platoon's in the, what we call the wrong place. Somebody can fire at them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, to use a technical term, run away, run away, uh, which you may, have, you may have encountered from time to time. Um, it's just the wrong place. Now, mortar platoon, if, you're mo- if they're anything like decently trained, and mortar platoons tend to be because they have to be, you know, to make it work at all and not blow themselves up. If they're anything like decently trained, they'll be having rounds on target within 100 seconds. Mm. Within, within two minutes, arrange close enough. Yeah. Because rounds don't need to land on you, you know. Um, it's the same with all the jumble about well, armor piercing or high explosives. Actually, the first time a tank gets hit, it's very often, World War II, it's very often going to be high explosives because that's what the other tank has up the spout. Mm. And when you first see the enemy, what you don't do is spend 30 seconds carefully extricating a round and putting it on the rack so you can pick up a different round and put it mm. in. You've got a high explosive round in, so you slap it on him. And if you hit him, that will be a big shock. And even if you don't hit him, it'll very likely cover him in cloud and dust and mud and, and what have you, and give you the time to get the next round in with which you will likely hit him because that graticule thing kind of works quite well for this. And the key yeah. thing in armored combat is not, as war game rules would have it, trading rounds like a sort of long distance boxing match. Hmm. It's absolutely not like that. It's if your tank gets hit by anything that hurt and your ears will tell you that it hurt because it goes, mm. like that, then you take cover. How do you take cover yeah. in a tank? You're going to reverse it. Reverse gear, yeah. Get behind something <laughs> or, you know, it, or get anything that, that hides you. Because very often you didn't know where that round came from anyway. Yeah. You do on the war game table. Mm. But in real life, you don't. With mm. anti-tank guns, even more so. Um I've got World War II Brits, so I've got six-pounder anti-tank guns. They're gigantic. Mm. Real-life six-pounder anti-tank gun is tiny. Mm. It looks big on a working table, partly because they're always made just plain too big, I think because they'd be too fragile otherwise. Yeah. And yeah, I understand practical rationale for that. But also, you're looking down on it. That's mm. not the aspect that the enemy sees. The enemy doesn't see a two 15-foot-long that's the barrel. They see the muzzle of the barrel, which is two and a half inches across. Well, 100 yards away, it's pretty hard to see something that's two and a half inches across. Mm. And the gun shield obviously makes it much bigger. But again, the gun shield's only, I'm guessing here, but maybe four foot wide and two foot high. And it's green. Mm. And you get it as far close to the ground as you can so that only the barrel is poking above so half of it just disappeared from mm. view and with a bit of luck you're poking around the corner so you you know you've obscured half of what was left the chances of somebody seeing of somebody in a tank seeing an anti-tank gun before it shoots at them 
very, very small. Mm. And our view of what anti-tank guns can do, very much, very much focused on the thickness of the armor, the weight of the projectile, and its muzzle velocity. Mm. All of these things are significant, but they're not crucial. And we're often misled by, um, shall we say, questionable memories. When an anti-tank gunner on a six-pounder writes after the battle, we were hitting them square on and the rounds just bounced off. What they actually mean was, I kept missing. <laughs> yeah. Which is a certain similarity, but that's that's as far as it goes. You know, <laughs> the word the word I was in there. That was yeah. that was pretty much as far as it goes. Um the the first, uh, the first Tiger tank to be knocked out and captured was done with a six-pounder. Mm. Um, there's an excellent book called, I think, Breaking the Breaking the Panzers. It's about an armoured action at Rowley in Normandy mm. when uh, the anti-tank platoon of some infantry regiment beats the hell out of a, a platoon of panzers at 500, 800, 1,000 yards away. Mm. That's that's that should be required reading, you know. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm I'm big on required reading. You're saying about people coming from other war game backgrounds and, mm. and they're not immersed themselves in the subject. Um, I, I have met a couple of people, but like the, 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 from the, exactly that sort of mm. how they came here, and I I like to recommend them a couple of readable books, <laughs> and so. Well, a lot of books, especially ones I've written, are really not at all readable. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a master of the dull writing. <laughs> I had a lot of practice. I've got a million yeah. words of dullness in print. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of novels that are, I, I use the term novel loosely. You know, when somebody writes a novel in the 1940s about their war experiences, they're just changing the names of the people they knew mm. as often as not. And there's a couple that are really well worthwhile. And certainly, I think both of them, but certainly one of them was required reading uh, for Santos and Camberley courses for decades. Mm. Uh, one of them is about tank soldiers. It's called Warriors for the Working Day. Yeah. Um, if you want to play war games set in Northern Europe in 1944-45 and you've not read it, then don't think about anything else until you've read it. And then throw away all your board game rules and start again. <laughs> start again. <laughs> the other one is called The Cauldron. And mm. it's about 20, 21st Independent Company at Arnhem. That's the, the Pathfinder unit, uh, mm. which it particularly fascinates me. The guy who wrote it also wrote several, um, uh, several other novels and several uh, film, I don't know what the word, I can't remember what the word it is, but film play. Mm. You're turning, turning books into films and what have you. Oh, it's screenplays. Screenplays, thank yeah. you, that's the yeah. term. And it, it, I've read these other novels and they are excruciatingly bad. They are, <laughs> they are dreadful. But The Cauldron is outrageous. Now, I've, been, I've studied 21st Independent Company a lot. And although it says at the beginning, these are all fictional characters, are they? they're not real people, I can identify six or seven of them quite easily. Because um, they're they're just a bit obvious, but it is a tremendously good insight into infantry combat because the guy could read and the guy was there. Um, he just yeah, the guy could write and the guy was there. He knows what he's talking about. Strongly recommend both these books to anybody who wants an under uh, a war gamer understanding of 
what's happening on the ground as far as you reasonably can. Yeah. And that's that's an important thing. As far as we reasonably can, that's that's the best we can hope for. You know, so, short of a time machine getting back in among the sharp <laughs> stuff, which I can promise you I don't want to do. No. Um, it, it's good to read basic training manuals, infantry, infantry training, volume one will do you the power of good. And there's any number of useful studies you can download, um, you know, contemporary work, post post-war work. But if you if you're not gonna take the kind of heavyweight industrial history approach, and not many people are gonna to want to do that, mm. reading those two books will give you a tremendously useful insight. I cannot recommend them too strongly. Brilliant. I've offended several World War II historians by um, saying this. I'm, oh. I'm sure you're not worried about that, Chris. <laughs> it breaks my heart, and it breaks my heart, and I lose so much sleep over it. The other thing that's worth checking out: Kevin Maxey, who wrote several you know, non-fiction books, mm. also wrote a sort of fictionalized battle account with the incredibly original title "Battle." Oh, and it's. It took, it, it, it took weeks uh, for that one to come out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, it's so, such an obscure title. How did anybody <laughs> guess? Um, but it is, uh, it's one it's, it's one day of action at battalion level in Normandy, where he was a battalion intelligence officer. He knows what he's talking about. Strongly recommended. You, you cannot go wrong with it. It's, uh, it's good combined armed stuff. It's the infantry battalion, the tank squadron that's in their support. How... How people's priorities work—it's—it's first-rate stuff. So, just before we finish this section, Chris, um, have you got a book on the go at the moment? Are you writing anything as we speak? No, I'm—I have a, lev- a, a serious determination to never write another book. <laughs> have, you, avoiding... have you? Have you retired? Retired? Then you, you've. Oh God, that. yeah. Well, the word you're looking for is actually retarded rather than retired. <laughs> Uh, I, I do a certain amount of, um, of of dodging dodging my publisher because they think it's time I wrote another book, and I really, really, really don't. It, do, uh, it, it's do not we, it's not an, it's not something I find an enjoyable process. Uh, do we need and, to cha- uh, do we need to change your name for the title of the podcast in case your publisher finds you? Uh, no, no, uh, we're no, all right. There, there, there are various war game websites where I'm known as Ugly Fat Bloke. Ah, right. I've lost quite a lot of weight since then, but the ugly bit and the bloke bit is still still spot on, you know. So no, you, you don't need to. But no, I've I've no no intention to write another book. Um, that, that's I, brilliant. <laughs> well, um, thanks thanks very much, Chris. Um, we'll just uh, draw a line under that uh, initial section there, and uh, we'll be back in a few moments, ladies and gentlemen, when we're going to talk about big games. Welcome back, everyone, and um, we're at that section now in the podcast where we talk about big games and people's experience of them. Um, so, what would what would be a big game for you, Chris? What's your what's your definition, if you like, of a big game? I, I don't really have a definition. I think it's more um, it can be a reflection of concentration. Earlier on, we talked about um, if, if you had a, a war game. Where you genuinely represented a street, and it might mm. you, your table could be really quite small, but your street of say thirty houses is a very dense battlefield, and that's a company battle. Mm. Um, Pat and I, we're, we're sad, sad people. We're really pathetic. We take working stuff 
on holiday with us as a normal thing. Nothing wrong with that. Um, <laughs> it's sometimes interesting when you're going through customs. Let's put it that way. Yes, I can imagine. Um, yeah. But obviously, in your usual hotel room, you don't really have much of a table to play on, mm. by and large. Um, but we've sort of d- developed ways of dealing with that, so which will involve a lot of scenery. The scenery will very often be plain cars representing small houses in a street, or, you know, we have various templates that represent buildings mm. or woodland and what have you. Um, you can have a surprisingly busy game with company and attack platoon depends on a table four foot by two foot, as long as there's so much scenery that there's no great line of sight, yeah. at which point you're approaching what real life is like, then it, 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 it's, it's plausible. A thing we've done quite often, I think most people would see this as a big game. Um, earlier on, I mentioned 21st Independent Company at Ireland. Yeah. Um, one of their actions is in the grounds of a house called uh, Omershof on the edge of Osterbeek. And the, the space that you need to, uh, to, to identify for a war game around this action is surprisingly small, even if you do it in what we think of, of what we call true scale. It's not really true scale, but it's close to it. So one inch on the tabletop represents two yards of real life. Yeah. Um, so one and one person, one figure really does represent yeah. one individual. So you're down to the figure scale effectively, aren't you? There. It's really is genuinely one to one, as opposed to something notional, approximately. Um, it's it's as real as you as you can hopefully make it. Now, to do this Omershoff game, and we've run this, I don't know, six or seven times with, with maybe as many as seven or eight people playing, hmm. um, you really just need a table uh, five foot by nine foot. It's better if you can have it more like six foot by 12, six foot by 14 even. You didn't actually need the extra bit. You see, the house and grounds are set in very dense woodland. Hmm. So... Although the Germans are only 30 yards away or 50 yards away off table, so to speak, they can't be seen. The woodland's really, really dense. They can't be seen till they emerge onto one or other of the tracks or roads that surround the almost half estate. Only estate's too grand a word, but your house and grounds. <laughs> so you don't you don't need any more than that. And it's a substantial game because there's the entirety of independent company, which by the time they get to almost half is about 150 people. Uh, there's 90 Royal Engineers and 60 glider pilots and about a dozen poles and a few people that have just drifted along and been caught up by, by the company commander, Boy Wilson, a, a remarkably interesting man. So that's quite a lot of figures. What is this? I can't remember now, 160, about 300 figures on the British side. To make a reasonable game, the Germans have to attack in battalion scale. So that's going to be at least three companies, and each company is going to be in the vicinity of 100 people strong. Mm. It's, you know, it's a biggish game yeah. on not that huge a table, but you're into real-life scales, which mm. means line of sight is the same thing as range. Mm. If you can see it, you can shoot it, yeah. or you can shoot at it anyway. In my case, you can shoot at it and miss, but, you know... <laughs> um, Apparently, other people's dice have a have a six on, which I've, I've only just discovered. Is that, is that only, a new thing? <laughs> I only ever seem to have ones and twos. Um, so that, that, that's a, a biggish game. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's probably not the case now, but at the, we, we've played on this game in one of our Mad Arnhem events 
which was basically two parallel tables about 25 to 30 foot long, joined by a 15 foot by six table at the top to make a kind of U shape. I'm, 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 I'm waving my hands to demonstrate this, having forgotten <laughs> that you can't actually see me. And I think we had nine, I think we had 19 players and four umpires. I yeah. would say that yeah. was a sizable game. Yeah. And last year, the last time that the, the, the big Claymore show in Edinburgh, big mm. board game show every year, uh, last year that ran, because obviously it didn't run last summer, the summer before we had uh, the biggest table they'd ever had at Claymore. And that was 32 foot by six. Wow. Uh, that was a, a Hue game, Vietnam game, uh, masses of helicopters and what have you. Um, there, there's, there, there's the thing, you know, it's not that common to be married to a war gamer, but female war gamers are just as empire building as male ones. <laughs> when the Vietnam War was at its height, 1969, 70, 71, 72, I lived in Singapore and then in Hong Kong, so it was more kind of on your doorstep, you know, the kind of things about the war that would get half a paragraph on page 17 in the press in Britain, front page news in the South China Morning Post. Yeah. Plus, our house was always awash with American servicemen, so um, I'd, I'd always wanted to do the Vietnam War, and obviously I would be the Americans. Yeah. So we got the opportunity to buy some kit, nice stuff, um, some of it beautifully painted by a guy called Angus Constant. I mean, lovely, lovely stuff. Mm. And when it arrived, with me obviously primed to be the Americans, because our games are divided this way, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I was going to be the Americans. They arrived, we unpacked them, Pat said, oh, they're nice, I'll have them. You can be the Viet Cong. Oh, no. <laughs> that, that was not the plan. That really was not the plan. Um so this, this big, and that, oh God, the Vietnam collections got out of hand, let's put it that way. Uh, they always do, all those things get out of hand. So that, that was, yeah, that, that was a big game. And as I say, the biggest table they'd ever had at Claymore. But the year before, we'd done a big Burma game, uh, which was also, at that point, the biggest table they'd ever had at Claymore. We like big games. Is that big, uh, stupid games. Is that put on uh, under your own name, Chris, or is it a club thing or a group of friends or, yeah. or just yourself and Pat? Um, so what, what, what we do is we go out at night and kidnap people and hold a gun <laughs> to their head and yeah. say, you just volunteered to take my... Um, it, it's kind of grown around us. We, we, we call it spit war games, you know, yeah. stupid projects in 28 mil, but it's really not a club. It's just the two of us and... Um, people that, have, that, have, that, have, that we've come across, that we've signed up to, that we've kidnapped in the night and blackmailed yeah. and that sort of thing. And we, our, our friends in Aberdeen, the figure painting company, Alba Studio, they're uh, extremely, extremely supportive of our stupid projects. <laughs> um, no, they are, they're great. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're the closest thing we could have to, to saying they're, they're a, a sponsor, but it's not really... It's not really a very useful term, but they are, they have been immensely helpful. Yeah. Um, Tom this year is driving again to Arnhem for our, for our September event, hmm. which means he can take lots and lots of stuff in his car. We're not, we're going to fly because, well, I don't drive and Pat doesn't want to drive on the continent and I can't say I blame her. Yeah. Um, they, they, they've been, they've been great. And the Scottish things that we go to and they'll always, A, turn up themselves to play and B, they'll usually, in fact, invariably dragoon a couple of other people into taking part. 
So um, it's like the it's like the equivalent of the um, uh, Royal Navy merchant, uh, so the Royal Navy press gang. You, yes. Yeah. You, you're going around and been, hitting people on the back of the head, and they suddenly yeah, wake up and they're playing a war game. We've, we, we've actually found that faking faking photographs and blackmailing people <laughs> is more is, is more effective. And yep. you know, you get to a certain age, you know, where where hitting people with a stick is is less yeah. effective. Yeah. Uh, there's a stage before that you get to a point where hitting people without a stick is really ineffective. <laughs> um, you, you have to go where you are. But Alba Studios are very, very helpful, very supportive of us. The last thing we did um, was a different a different idea of a big game. It was mm. a big game. It was about a table about, well, six foot by maybe 15 or so. Mm. A, World, a World War II game with 54 mil figures. Ah, now we're going big. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a different sort of big. There's a guy called John Lander, John Stander. Um, he's, a, he's a figure painter. He has a, a his company's called Battle Brass Studios. They're an American. Yeah, band. I know them. Yeah, yeah. yeah years ago, he put together these collections, this co- collection for doing uh, crossfire games in 54 mm. mil. Um, there's lots of pictures of them on the Board Game Holiday Center website. Mm. And there was a couple of big articles about them in the in, in Wargames Illustrated years ago. He, he put it together to, to take to to big shows like you know, Salute and stuff like that. It was quite a quite, quite a well known collection, shall we say? And when he was moving to America, because obviously it was going to be a bit difficult to transport, you know, he decided to, that he would sell it up. And Pat and I saw some of this and thought that's nice. We, we could do that. We'll get a well a crossfire. Uh, a crossfire company of Germans and a crossfire mm. company of Brits now and, and a building. Now that would be cool. So 500 figures, a hundred vehicles, 20 buildings later, we have this ridiculous, ridiculous <laughs> collection. We have <clears throat> we have never been able to make a game with all of it at once. Wow, that, um, that is big. What's remarkable is you don't really need that big a space to have quite a big game with them. Mm. We've had numerous um, company engagements. You know, like, like I said earlier, company meets company meeting engagement actions don't happen in real life, but they certainly happen on the working table. We've mm. had loads of those on a 10 by 5 table. Yeah. Um, as long as you've got a decent amount of buildings and trees and hedges and what have you to block line of sight, you're, you're laughing. And we use bolt action, but with no ranges, except for things like Piets and Panzerfausts, which genuinely have short range. such a short range that you do reflect it on the battlefield. You know, even in 54 mil, a Piets range is only four, three foot, something like that. Yeah. That's, just, or four foot, that's just real physical range. So we reflect that. But beyond that, nah, if, if you can see it, <laughs> you, you, you can hit it, you know. Um, I wouldn't say we were sad, mad, and completely ludicrous, but Pat does have a squadron of uh, 54 millimeter Shermans. My you know, God. A squadron. <laughs> and, 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 and a bulldozer. Oh, my word. And, 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 uh, and a recovery vehicle. Oh, you, if, you, if you go in the whole hog, you need a recovery vehicle as well, don't you? Yeah, I know. We, we really are dreadful, <laughs> dreadful people. There's... there's, there's there's nothing good you can say about this. It really is different. It's like the Burma thing, you know, other people with a 28 mil 
Burma army, for some reason people always say chindis, but I can't help that. A Burma army, and they'll have a mule yeah. you know, to carry the baggage. Pat's got, I think, 20 mules. Because that way they're an element, <laughs> that way they're an element on the battlefield that you actually have to do something about. So either if you're the Japanese, which is me, because she won't play Japanese, you have yeah. to capture them. Or if you're the Brits, well, probably Indians or whatever, you have to prevent them being captured. That's usually the target, you know. Yeah. It's an objective. And a lot of things we have on our table are either objectives, um, either to capture or to defend, um, or they're just set dressing. You know, we, we, mm. we like to have stuff on, on the tables. Um, Pat's 54 mil stuff does include a horse-drawn German field kitchen. I have no idea why, but it's there. It sounds like it's a been, good objective. <laughs> it, it's been objective once or twice, yes. Um, the, the squad I mean, needs to get like, breakfast and there's a German yeah. field kitchen over the hill. Yeah, we, 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 like, we like big crazy games. When we were in Shetland, we did a lot of big American Civil War games. Um, we used essentially DBA-type rules to play them. Mm. Um, the units were anything from 12 to 20 figures on a base six inches by two inches. This is 28 mil figures. And that, that's a regiment. And we'd have, I suppose, uh, about 5,000 figures. Yeah. 5,000 figures on, on, on the tabletop and a dozen people playing. We did have the advantage that Pat was the um, head teacher of a, a primary school in Shetland. Therefore, there was a big hall with tables that we could borrow without having to pay for it. It's always a consideration, <laughs> yep. you know. And, of course, we could get in on a Friday afternoon to fit up and sort it all out and go back on a Sunday to clear it all up. Yeah, it was, it was great. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Um, we kind of we played that to death. We, we played so many Civil War games that we, we, we just had enough. And mm. I got the opportunity to sell the whole lot in, in a banner to somebody just as mad as us, obviously. They are um, out so, there. They are out there. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> and hopefully lot, most of them listen to this podcast. <laughs> well, it, good. Well, some, somebody out there wants to buy a big collection of World War II in 54 mil. It's a really lovely collection, but um, it just takes... We have a smaller house now since we moved mm. from Shetland, and it just takes up too much room. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's lovely, it's great, um, and it does get played with, but uh, some, something has to give, and I'm afraid that's what's going to give. So, do you, ever, do, you ever, do you ever wander down across the border to shows with um, your displays, or is it mostly up in Scotland? Um, well, when we were in Shetland, it wasn't really much of an option. Um, coming down to, do claim, to, to go to the Claymore show, um, we could sort of work that round with visits to our children and grandchildren and parents and what have you. Um, and since we moved from Shetland, really everything's been stopped with COVID anyway. Right. So it's, it's not, it's not been, not been a thing. Hmm. Um, we would certainly like to, uh, travel is, you know, expensive and bothersome, you know, like people don't necessarily appreciate dif distances. Hmm. Uh, I had this, I was asked to take part in a telly programme and this is when we're up in Shetland and I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do that. You'll have to fly me down to Glasgow. I paid for me to fly down to Glasgow and the other end says, well, why, why can't you get the train? Because like, I'm in Shetland. <laughs> yeah, but you, but you could get, but you could get, 
you could get the train. But no, 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 I can't. Well, where would you have to go to to get a train in Venice? Well, why don't you do that? Because you'd have to fly me to Inverness. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? So there is not a 190-mile railway bridge that connects Shetland to anywhere, you know. Are you sure? Yes, I'm really, really sure. <laughs> oh, God, oh, I am. Um, so the same kind of thing applies, you know, and mm. also as you get older, you know, time was, if we'd been doing this when we lived down here before, 20 years ago, then idea of getting up at horrible o'clock in the morning and driving down to Newcastle, playing a game and coming back again, wouldn't have been impossible. Uh, our age now, uh, yeah, it, it, it's just, it's just, it's just too many hours, you know, it's, it's too much. So it would be a matter of driving down the day before, doing the show, driving back the next again day, you know, you've got two nights in a hotel, mm. just, just like that. Um, which which makes for an expensive outing, you know, uh, and we're, we're not rich. Um, <laughs> and much, much as it would be lovely to do something like this at, you know, Salute or whatever, but again, it's, you know, uh, for us to go to Salute, you spent a thousand quid to go to a war game. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big layout. I certainly remember years ago, we used to, uh, from from the Leeds Bradford area, we would get up at four five o'clock in the morning and drive to Edinburgh and put a, a game on at the Claymore show. Um, and I think the last one we did was at the Medibank Stadium. I think it's it's moved from there now, hasn't it? Yeah. To the yeah, to the it, university. Yeah, one one of Edinburgh's many universities. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember. Oh, I remember. Strangely, we put a, a huge game of Culloden on, um, and uh, that that drew some interest. Strangely, in the uh, in the in the area, um, but yes, it, it, we and then we you kind of finish at five five o'clock and pack up, and then realise you'd have got four or five hours to drive home back to Leeds. Uh, so yeah. we, we haven't done that for a while, but I have been known. Um, to plan um, family holidays around Claymore, uh, so, <laughs> well, so. Th- does that does that does that indicate that either your family really loves you, or your family really puts up with you, which is another possibility, or you're holding a revolver to their heads? Well, you know, I, I have... we're all we're all going to Claymore, or the dog buys a farm. Well, I have, yeah, I have to say that. Um, We've, we've had quite a few family holidays and we went to the Normandy area for one two-week holiday. And then the following year, uh, we went to the Battle of Bulge area um, for another two-week holiday. And, and my wife said, I know way too much about tanks for a middle-aged woman. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so she's, she's an expert in, uh, in tanks of the late World War II. As a yes, result of the holidays. I, I know of a figure painter's wife who says exactly the same thing. <laughs> I, can, I, I can identify far too many different types of Hannah Mag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's a step too far, that is. <laughs> it, 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 when you go to or when you've been to shows, uh, Chris, is it does it make a difference to you when you look at um, a table and, and get that wow factor about the size of the table or the or the scale of the figures? Is there anything in particular that, you, that makes you your eyes pop when you see a game? 
Um, yeah, I uh, I like to see people engaged with the game, people yeah. really involved. Um, I like atmospheres. I, I, I used to work for rock and roll bands and opera companies and stuff, mm. um, and just events. And I, I like uh, I like intense atmospheres of events. It mm. doesn't need to be a huge event. Um, it's just I need to, I like to see a bunch of people really enjoying themselves. If it's going really really well. Um, you know, the, the kind that, that, that run best is um, I crack the clip and get everybody playing and then I step back and just let them get on with it and I'm not mm. really engaged anymore unless something requires a decision. But even then, I'll usually have a point, you know, appointed, persuaded, bullied, maybe even bribed somebody into saying, well, if you're asked, you know, a decision, a rules decision, you, you, you do, you make a decision doesn't happen often and if you appeal to me if anybody appeals to me i'll always give you not a rules decision but a history decision and there's a good chance you won't like that <laughs> so, so, so people don't ask which yeah. I find but i that's the ideal thing is if it's if it's running well and if your rules are simple and there's no reason for your rules not to be simple in my view hmm. if your rules are simple and everybody's engaged with it and everybody's um if everybody's become immersed in, in, in the game rather than history of the capital age, hmm. um, in a in a way it's kind of like are, are they are they sort of like actors in a, in, in a movie? Yeah, you know, what's going on, on the table is not a documentary, it's a story. Hmm. So they're acting as parts in the story, really. I mean, I wouldn't say that to them because some of them would be embarrassed and some of them would be put off, but really that is what's going on. They're the platoon commanders or the company commanders or whatever. That's that's what I'm looking for. Mm. If they're engaged in that kind of a way, that's that's ideal. Um, mm. And and I just like to see it happen. I like to see it going on. I love to see um, beautifully executed um, armies and terrain and what have you. Mm. I think that, that's great. Um, my, my personal level of modelling skill is what's sometimes referred to as handless and blind, <laughs> and, and I'm deeply incompetent. <laughs> on, on, a, on a huge scale, uh, really genuinely useless. Um, I say this to people, and they say they 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 nod their heads sagely and say, "Yeah, but you're not really as crap as all that, are you?" I say, yes, yes, I, I really am. I really am dreadful. Um, and I, I love to see that, um, and I think it's great that people go to the effort, and I think you should uh, if, if if you can. But it's not the be all and end all. Mm. Um, I've seen some great games with very very basic. Uh, painting of our very basic terrain. Um, I saw a huge World War One game with um, airfield soldiers. Uh, you, you remember the ones British infantry yeah. and French infantry, it's, uh, French and Germans, and uh, they weren't painted at all. The terrain was basically trenches painted brown. There was mm. nothing more ambitious than that. The Audrian building, but again, nothing great. But it was. I, it was a cunningly put together game. There were, I think, six people playing it, and they were all and one person who was just there to talk to the public, which I yeah. think is an important yeah. aspect. Um, but the, the six people playing had no interest or contact with the people who are going past and watching the game. They were really, really engaged. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. That's that's what you want. Hmm. Um, the, the engage with the public thing. That's largely what I do at, at big games at shows. Yeah. Um, I wait for people to ask me questions and or 
you know, as they go by, I said, yeah, do you want to hear about this? Can I tell you about this? Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's that's the most useful thing I, I can do. Yeah, um, I think it's very, it's very important to have somebody who does that. Um, a lot of the complaints that you have towards big games are that it's just a group of friends playing a game at a show and and not really interacting with the the sort of the, the, the people who've come to look. And I think what you're saying there is exactly right. Uh, to have somebody engaging with members of the public and talking about the game, it, it, it brings it to life for them, doesn't it? Yeah, it helps them to know what it is that's going on. Mm. Um, some things will be fairly obvious. Some things will be obvious to board gamers, but maybe not so much to other people, people mm. who just happen to, to drift in, especially the case of something like... Um, Claymore, where you've got what four or five thousand people pass through. Yeah, probably not so much now that it's um, out at university. But when it was in the middle of town in in, in the assembly rooms, there'd be quite a lot of just common garden genuine passers by who thought, mm. "What the hell's that? I'll go in and have a shafty." No idea what it's twins about. So it, it, it's important. Also, it means that the players can concentrate on playing the game. Mm. They're not distracted. They're not. Um, then they're not being drawn from the game to talk to people who are asking them questions. There's somebody to do that, an audience wrangler who wrangles the audience and <laughs> you know and, and and does does what needs to be done in, in that sort of a way. And uh, um I think it's a important thing that somebody's doing it. And I quite like doing it anyway. Um it's it's one of these things where people will and the odd person will come along who'll tell you about the history again because they nearly read a book once. Yeah. You know? And that's that's kind of inevitable. Um, and that's but that's not a bad thing either, you know, because they're going to tell you about something you can say, well, no, actually, it's not like that. Hmm. It's like this. This is what happened. This is how it works. Um people's popular views are often well out to lunch with what we know to be the case. I mean, we were, we were talking about this earlier with the Battle mm. of the Somme. Everybody knows 60,000, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Um, doesn't really bear much resemblance. Um, the pub, wider public and historians very badly are, are, are kind of led toward this kind of thinking, though. Um, mm. Going back to Arnhem as an example, anybody who reads about Arnhem reads about, um, well, the inadvertently dropped in on top of two German armoured divisions, hmm. which is yeah, fairly classically bad. Hmm. But when you break that down a little bit into two German armoured divisions that are about 30% of their numerical strength and have no tanks, that changes the picture a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> that's, not, that's not what we wanted to hear, guys, you know? Because um, we want an excuse for we want an excuse for defeat. Yeah. That's that's not uncommon. It's kind of how it is, you know. Um, we are led towards things that are uh, dramatic and, and and romantic. Well, if we're war gamers, we like dramatic and romantic. Mm. If there wasn't a romance to battle, none of us would be doing this. Yeah. So the. Um... Do you keep up with with modern trends in gaming, Chris? Are you aware of the the sort of drive towards more skirmish based games and smaller tables and and smaller um, smaller armies? Um, well, we've always been 
um, content's maybe not the right word, we've always been amenable to playing on small tables because mm. very often you just have a small table. Yeah. And that's, yeah. <laughs> that's just how it is, guys. It's, it's what's available. Um, smaller armies, I, I don't think big army, small army is, is necessarily um, of any importance as to whether the game was good or not. Yeah. I've seen some massive games and some of them beautifully produced, you know, lovely terrain, lovely figures, nice handouts and people talking, you know, engaging with the audience yeah. and what have you, all nicely done. But but the game, judging by the look on the players' faces, was as, <laughs> te as tedious as porridge with neither salt nor sugar, you know. Yeah. A, a big wave of dullness going on. Um, yeah. I, I said earlier, we used to have lovely big Scottish and English medieval collections um, before that, we had enormous English Civil War collections, hmm. but we found the games tedious. <laughs> and the, the English Civil War thing came about by accident. My friend was uh, working in a charity shop in Edinburgh, and somebody brought in <laughs> two big cardboard boxes full of basically squashed old minifigs. Remember the minifigs? Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah. Not very exciting figures, shall we say. <laughs> um, but masses of them. Yeah. And the person that ran the shop didn't want them in the shop because they were lead and da, 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 da. Um, so we, I think, this is before I met Pat, uh, mm. I think I gave him, I think I contributed a, a hundred quid for the whole lot yeah. and spent a lot of time rebuilding them into blocks of 10 pikemen and 10 musketeers. And they looked really good because mm. it was you know, huge numbers. You know, I, I could make an English Civil War infantry regiment as in 1,200 people yeah. and have a lot left over, you know. <laughs> Um, proper one-to-one gaming. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you have some dragoons? Yes, I've got a company of 100 dragoons mounted and dismounted. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Humongous scale. And um, in fact, the first war against Pat and I fought with them. And I'm amazed that she, uh, that, 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 that she survived the experience and maintained an interest in being a war gamer because the games were just so tedious. Yeah. They looked good, but... After two or three, you know, it's blocks of infantry regiments in the middle, cavalry regiments on the flanks, not very effective artillery to kick off, and then you all mix up, and, well, it's dull, guys. It's really, <laughs> really dull. Um, I, I, I can think of no better word than dull. Um, so when, when somebody, somebody rocked up and... and I can't remember how they got in touch with this or how we, but somebody was interested in buying the whole lot. And mm. I, I, I mean, he did, he, he did give us money, but honestly, I would have been happy to give him money to take him away. <laughs> isn't it? The the space they took up was ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, so you know, you're not a big fan of the English Civil War, then. Oh, right. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Yeah, so we'll be back in a minute for the quiz. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's that bit that uh, you all look forward to and the guests all um, dread. It's the How Yorkshire Gamer Are You test. And um, the last um, person to do this, uh, Richard Harris, was from Yorkshire, so he had a distinct advantage. Uh, so are you ready to have a go, Chris? Absolutely. So first thing that comes into your head, um, and we'll, we'll just go down the questions. Uh, so um, first question is... Wargaming, go big or go home? Oh, go big. Go, go big. big. 
Um, contrast paints, are they great or a gimmick? I have no idea. <laughs> my, my Pat hasn't got contrast paints Has yet, not? so I haven't. I haven't. I have. I have not yet been told what I think about them. Excellent. I, I'm sure you'll form an opinion once she's bought. <laughs> no, I've been told what my opinion is, but that's that's right and proper. Um, paintbrushes, Windsor and Newton, or Yorkshire made Pro Art. I, I know that Pat has Pro Art paint paintbrushes. Excellent. Well done, Pat. I'm not allowed um, to touch them. Exactly. I don't, I don't blame her. The, the Yorkshire made the proper stuff. There you go. <laughs> um, ninety fig. No, sorry, ninety six figures. Is that an army or a pipe block? It's a company. Depends um, on the period, but depend- yes, pipe. Pike block is closer to the animal, as far as I'm concerned. Lovely. That's what I like to hear. Six, <laughs> um, six foot by four foot table. Is that a big game or a small game? It's a small game in our house, I assure you. <laughs> Do you like to play a points-based army or an historical order of battle? I don't believe in points, by and large. There is an exception to that, which we'll maybe come back to later, but by and large, it's just not a thing. Um, th- this is a bit of a difficult one. You might have to get Pat to answer this one. Um, when you're painting, do you use a wet palette or an old piece of MDF to mix your paint? Uh, she has an old piece of... Uh, no, it's not MDF. I don't know what it is. There's, there's some bit of wood or something. That's, I that, have no that's, idea. That's good for me. That's good for me. I like mm. that. Um, uh, no, I, but I know that she uses a lot and the little con- plastic containers that contact lenses come in oh yes yeah you get two and and she swears by them she uses them a lot um so i expect there's something good about it uh, is that for mixing paint or for but what does she use for mixing for? paints and all, all sorts of stuff mm. but mostly mixing paints and um and therefore when you've mixed a bit of something you can um uh, put a dot of it on top of the the the, the, the lid yeah and close it down and it will keep perfectly well for several days at least well, that's a, that's a top tip from Pat. I like that one. Um, when, and again, this is probably more for Pat than yourself, but when you undercoat figures, do you go black or white? Uh, mostly black. Mostly black. And um, when you, if we imagine a pipe block on the War Games table, do you like the figures closely packed or socially distanced? Closely packed. Closely packed. Do you prefer a two-hour club game or a weekend monster game? Um, really a weekend monster game, but then we're we're not really club goers. I like that. I like that. Um, to, to us, a club is an instrument for persuading people. <laughs> to come and play monster games. Yeah. And that's what they uh, or, or, or to go away. Either is possible. <laughs> um, competition game or a campaign game? campaign competition is just not our thing that said we've taken part in a couple of because friends have bullied us into it a couple of bolt action competitions pat works very hard at coming last ah, because right. if you if you come last you always get nice prize things yeah which nobody else does and she's had some really she's had some really groovy stuff out of it yeah like, oh, that's, that's, i wish i'd come last yeah well you've got two tanks and a truck and have the, you know, a, box, a box of figures to be made. Yeah, you did really well. Like, coming <laughs> so um, round dice, would you allow them on your table or not? Round dice? 
I'm sorry, I've never heard of round dice. Yeah, they're, they're, I'm, I'm, I might be giving you unconscious bias by saying this, but they're really, really annoying. And they roll for ages, and eventually they stop on something that's in between two numbers. So <laughs> would you allow yeah. Would you allow those or ban them? Um, I think I'd, if anybody brought them, I think I'd make them eat them themselves. Excellent. Probably, they, 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 they sound dreadful to me. You probably come a bit further than I would there, Chris. But yeah. our, 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 our own World War II game uh, depends on, on 12-sided dice, and I find them annoying. But they, they kind of work for the game, but I still find them a bit <laughs> annoying. And when, I, when I've rejigged the maths a bit, we may end up going to 10-sided dice just because... It's they, they they roll a bit better, yeah, but no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I've never even heard of round dice, but I promise you, it's not on my agenda. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, if, if you don't know the story behind this question, you might struggle, but if you just go for the first thing that comes into your head, um, would you pay 33 pence for a communist? I expect not. <laughs> um, do you, um, enjoy a, a a good table of, of figures like a casualty table and a set of rules i'm not quite sure what you mean oh um, all right sorry. Um, yeah i prefer to avoid um tables and chart cranking if i if it can be avoided at all I and mean, one of the reasons that our own game is taking a long time to develop is well the main reason is idleness obviously yeah um but another is to avoid having any tables Right, um, so you're firmly in the no table is, scale. The plan is that the, 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 the sort of user part of these, these rules, and I don't mean it as a quick reference sheet, but the mm. sort of user part of these rules will take both sides of a sheet of A4. That's Brilliant. it. Brilliant. Uh, so question 16, we're nearly there. Um, 28 millimetre, is that king? Yes or no? Yes, except when we want to do World War Two in a really mad way. 54 <laughs> Uh, which I might say we do with the American Civil War as well. Uh, would you allow unpainted miniatures on the table? Uh, uh, no. No. Um, I've, I've seen it, been happy with it, but not for me. Yeah. Um, you might struggle with this one, Chris, uh, because we've mentioned your deep love of football, um, or soccer, as you call it. Um, Bradford City or Leeds United? I have no idea. <laughs> Um, very important question. Bradford Bulls or Leeds Rhino? I might have. Had oh, you might have enough. <laughs> um, so, um, very important question. This one here, Chris. Um, we're talking um, Yorkshire or the other other place over the hill. There are there are great things that come out of the other place over the hill. There's the M1N. <laughs> there's the M62. Yeah. <laughs> you are your questions answered. Uh, yeah, so are you going for the other lot rather than Yorkshire? No, 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 no. They, they think things come. <laughs> ah, good things come from it. Line. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. And and finally, um, are you Games Workshop? Um, are they the devil, or the, are they the work of the devil? Yes or no? I, I suspect they probably are. I've been in a Games Workshop shop once. There's one on in the Royal Mail in Edinburgh. I was in there for minutes on end. Um, it, just, it, just wasn't, it, 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 it wasn't for me, um, and I, I couldn't understand the rationale of 
I think it was six quid for a not very good, moderately fine paintbrush. Yeah. Um, no, no, really, 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 really not. I'm sure it's great for people who like that sort of thing. It's just that I'm not a sort of elves and hobbits and robots sort of person. Yeah. So good. Best of luck to them, but not for me. Brilliant. Well, well, I, I have to say, Chris, you've done you've done pretty well. Um, you've got eighty percent. You are eighty percent Yorkshire gamer, which I think is quite impressive. <laughs> uh, that puts you that drops you in night nicely into second place of the four people who've taken part. And the the, the only person who's beat you comes from Yorkshire. So um, I think that's a very good performance. I think um, you've done um, the north of the Midlands very very proud today. Exactly, exactly. So we'll be back in a second, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll just uh, we're going to chat with uh, Chris um, about um, the Spit Facebook page and also um, an event he's got coming up hopefully um, this year later in Arnhem. Okay, um, I hope you've all recovered. Uh, Chris has done a remarkable job there on the quiz, uh, 80%, super, super results. And we're just going to finish off now as we do with all the guests and just have a, uh, a chat around a topic that's particular of interest to them and um, things that are coming up. And first thing I want to talk to you about, Chris, is, is the, uh, the SPIT Facebook page. What, what does SPIT mean and, and where's it, where did it originate from? It's, it, it named itself from what we do. SPIT stands for Stupid Projects in 28 mil. Brilliant. Because that, that, really that really does encapsulate what we do. Yeah. If, if, if it's, we're, not, we're not particularly fussy. We have you know, 54 mil soldiers, so on, on occasion it becomes stupid projects in two and three quarter inches. <laughs> but it, in essence, it's the same thing. Um, because we like big games you know the stuff that we've been talking about like the, the true scale games with you know an inch on the table is two two yards on the battle sorry but an inch on the table is two yards in real life that sort of thing um it's just it's just what we like and um it all i don't really know how it originated that we we were we were in Arnhem. There's a, a hotel we go to in Arnhem a lot, and despite the fact we've been there often, the hotel people do actually like us. We don't we don't know why, but despite that, they do. And we we've, we've been there a few times, and somehow we ended up there with a few other war gamers and played the the Omershof game as it happens. Hmm. You know, with, um, they're mostly um, local guys and um, one local woman, and it just kind of kind of grew out of that um, mm. and a guy who well, he actually works and lives in Japan but he was visiting his friends in Germany and they brought him to one of these events and he said yeah we should have t-shirts for this and I said yeah we should <laughs> stupid projects in 28 mil he said I'll yeah. buy that t-shirt we've not yeah. actually done that but um, that's, that's it's come out of there so um, the first big the first real spit event un under that name, so to speak, mm. was um, now three years ago, which was again at, at Arnhem. The attraction of Arnhem is this particular hotel um, who are very, very helpful. It's called yeah. the NH Rhine and they are, they're incredibly helpful. 
what's really best about it, I suppose, is um, if you're an Arnhem geek at all, and I'm sure some of the people watch, listening to this will be, mm. there's a fairly famous Arnhem photograph of a Stug self-propelled gun trundling down the street mm. with a bunch of soldiers sitting on the back of it. Immediately behind the Stug, there's an Art Deco building. That's where we're staying. Oh, playing. brilliant. That's brilliant. where we have yeah. our games. It's about the only place you can have your breakfast in a place in, in the room where people have done O groups for battle that's actually going on. You know? <laughs> We've been brought through twice. But I think, uh, here's a bit entertaining embarrassment. I, I wrote long ago, and at least 100 other Iron authors have done so, about how this building, the Rhine Pavilion, was destroyed during the fighting because mm. everybody knows it was, except it wasn't. It's a big... <laughs> It's a big concrete art deco thing. It got yeah. shot up. Okay, you plaster it up, paint it, put in new windows, boom, back in business. Hmm. Um, that's that's where we, we we have our thing. We didn't have it last year because of COVID, and we didn't do it the year before because it was the 75th anniversary, and all hotels in Ireland had been booked up for, hmm. in some cases, literally years in advance because it was going to be the last year when there was an awful, you know, a yeah. really big effort about getting veterans there and what have you. Mm. So we're there the year before that, and it, it went really well. We had a good time. It's not at all like um, like a board game show. It's not at all like a tournament. There, there's nothing like that. It's mm. we, There's not that much space. Um, so we limit it to 50 people. That's that's it. You know, the, the, There ain't room for any more. And um, we'll have some big games going on. Uh, which will, some of them, feature a model of the building that we're actually playing in. I mean, you don't get much more geeky no. sad than that. <laughs> it's deeply pathetic. Um, a chap called uh, Jeff Lacey, do you know him at all? He has uh, Purple Line Creations and makes very lovely working buildings. Yeah. And he made uh, an, an NH Rhine or Rhine Pavilion for us. Anybody who's reading about the Ireland Battle will come across references to the Rhine Pavilion. Mm. That's the one. That's where we'll be. Uh, there's lots of it's uh, it's we just love Arnhem as a city. It's a great place to go, mm. um, but it's it's the kind of the central spit event, if you like. The things we've done at Claymore, um, stuff we've done at um, the, the Targe and Skelp up in Forfarshire and uh, mm. so on. They're, they're, they're all various spit events, but the yeah the the, the big thing is going to Arnhem because yeah, mm. it, it's a big deal and yeah. Uh, yeah. and we love it. So yes. Get so, in touch. We have we have a Spit Facebook page, which, funny yeah. enough, you'll find by just putting in SPIT War Games, Spit <laughs> War Games. And if you fancy the Ireland trip, we have a separate Facebook page specifically for that, with the mysterious and incredibly original title Arnhem Twenty One. Another and week's work thinking that one out. I was, it, yeah. We had we, we we had a design competition. It's the only way yeah. to go. Really. And a lot of brainstorming sessions. Or drinking, as we call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ireland 21. Uh, Spit War Games, we're interested in, in in any kind of unusual, wacky games you do. That's lovely and we're lovely. You know, please, please do come and join it. Mm. Ireland 21. If you're not keen on... If you do, by all means, join it and have a look. But don't post things that aren't to do with Ireland. That's, yeah. that's really yeah. the key thing. Uh, we have 50 places and... We started uh, making them available about a month ago, and we've filled a third of them now. Oh, so there's it's 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 going it's going pretty well. Um, we expect or we will have uh, 
something on the warlord side. Warlord have been incredibly supportive, I have to say, mm. incredibly supportive of split working projects in general, but Arnhem, the Arnhem one in particular, um, you know, the times we've done it in the past, they've been very, very helpful, very supportive. What, um, um, they'll what, have a piece about it on their website before long. Brilliant. What dates are you um, looking at for that, Chris? This year, it's uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 17th, 18th and 19th. And 17th is the anniversary of the beginning of the operation, so it's particularly appropriate. You know, yeah. it's, it's nice as diamonds. Broadly speaking, how it runs is it's games in the evening and therefore you've got the day to explore the battlefield, go to museums, because there's a lot going on. It's a commemorative weekend. There'll be, uh, all things being equal, there'll be a big parachute dropout on Ginkle Heath. Um, There'll be lots of reenactors and that sort of thing going on. But you don't have to spend your day going about doing that. You can stay and play all day by all means. We're we're happy to arrange that. Uh, There'll be um, a lot of bolt action because you know, we play a sort of bolt action. That's where we mm. kind of started in this. And Warlord Games are very supportive. <laughs> yeah, uh, they, well, they are. They've been <laughs> they've been really great. I mean, I, honestly, I can't I can't praise them too much. Um, they have been absolutely brilliant. And of course, I wrote the bolt action market garden book. So we're kind of with the, uh, yeah, there. We're, we go. <laughs> we're, 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 we're we're connected. We're connected. Yeah. Um, I'll prob probably run uh, a coach trip around the more inaccessible parts of the battlefield. Yeah. We, we did it last time and it worked really well. Um, we can arrange rooms at the hotel and venue at a very, very good price for, for what you're getting. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a nice hotel. It's not yeah. super cheap, but it's very good for what you're getting. And uh, well, I'll pretty certainly do a, a kind of walk and talk in the immediate vicinity of the hotel because it's, slap in the middle of the most important, arguably, most important axis of the battle. This yeah. is on the route that John Frost's battalion took to get to the bridge. The guys yeah. actually got yeah. to it there. And it's also the route where um, all the succeeding attempts to, uh, to, to to relieve them, that's the path they go. It's mm. incredibly narrow, tiny battle sites. At one mm. point in the distance between the riverbank and the railway line, there are two quite separate battalion actions going on. Yeah. And the whole breadth of that is only 130 yards. Wow. It's, it's incredibly, incredibly tight. And it's, um, you're, you're, you can see so much in the battle area. It's, so, it's, a, it's a great place to have a little tour around. You're 100 yards from the Elizabeth Hospital. You're 100 yards from where Urquhart hid out overnight. Hmm. Um, you're, you're slapping in the middle of things. And best of all, well, best of all, we always get the same room when we go to the hotel. It's got a gigantic semicircular balcony. Yeah. You're on the balcony, you can see the railway bridge to your right, the road bridge to your left, and up and down the river accordingly. It's a great place to do a little, you know, walk and talk or start a walk and talk about what we're doing, how we're, how this thing unfolds, how this mm. goes. And uh, it's good fun. We have, we've had a great time when we've done it in the past, each time we've done it. Have you got specific games organised for for this year? Um, yeah, one of them uh, is going to reflect on the working table. This, sorry, this will only be meaningful to other Iron geeks, probably. <laughs> but the distance I'm between, sure there'll be plenty of them. I hope so. The distance between the Rhine Pavilion at one end 
Yeah. And what the, what the British troops called the monastery, but actually it was a museum yeah. at the other yeah. end, is the distance of about 300 yards, maybe mm. in real life, 350 yards. It's really not far, maybe yeah. 400, very outside. Uh, we'll compress that a little bit to a table of maybe 12 or 15 foot. Yeah. And we'll have some commoner garden bolt action type games going on that. But we'll also be doing... Uh, uh, a, a demonstration of, of Pat and Mines rules, fire for effect, hmm. which will be the first time it's really seen in public. <laughs> this is going to be embarrassing. Um, but that'll be obviously a completely fictional conflict version just so we can show this is what happened to the rules. Yeah. If, if, if it's working well, I'll have had a half hour to talk to two other players and get them to play it just for the sake of being talked through it. Yeah. Then show them the rules and get them playing. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's maybe a little bit ambitious. We'll see. But that would be one. We'll probably have the Omershof game going because it works really well as a as a group game. Hmm. Um, we have a we have a, a, a system for making multiplayer bolt action games happen at the same speed as any other kind of bolt action game. And none of yeah. this business of waiting half an hour for your die to come out of the yeah. bag. It, it's a very straightforward system. Um, we make people responsible for their own activation dice. And you might have 10 units, but you'll only have eight dice. Right. So um, umpire, or one of you, has a deck of 16 cards, turns over a black card, all the Axis players play one dice. Hmm. Or more than one if they're doing snap to it. Turn over a red card, all the Allied players play one dice or more accordingly. Um, Having more units than you have dice means you have to prioritise and you have to take care. and it works, it works really well. It works fast. Um, we found that tempo of the game is, is everything. Mm. That you have to really crack the whip in the first turn or first two turns to make everybody play fast. But once, they've, once they're there, that, that's fine. They just, you know, that's what, they've, that's, that's mm. what feels right to them. So the games play out fast. And we have played some huge, ridiculous, ridiculous games. So we'll definitely have those. Um, we're toying with, um, uh, with, with something close to a true scale game for the bridge area. Yeah. Um, that might be literally a bridge too far um, and certainly a, possibly a project too stupid even yeah. for us. So, um, yeah, it'll, it'll get there. Um, and it won't all be Arnhem games, strictly speaking, but it will be very market garden themed. Hmm. So you can expect that there will be games set around... Um, German counterattacks in the in the area of Eindhoven or Nijmegen, anywhere along the road from uh, from Elst to Arnhem. Hmm. So your know, commoner garden. Um, if you've got the Arnhem, the bolt action market garden book, you'll see there are some relatively unusual um, projects and prospects as things like um, like there will be games involving. Brits of one kind or another, or Americans on on one side, and German flak units on the other. Hmm. Um, Tom Alba Studios is making this huge stack of German flak <laughs> vehicles um, because that's a thing that happened, guys. Yeah. Um, some of the we, we also apply. Not everybody has bolt action armies, and even if people have them, they won't necessarily have armies that are appropriate. Um, and will not necessarily be able to travel with them for yeah. whatever reasons. Yeah. So we will bring a few armies. When I say a few, I think Tom's bringing about 12 or 15, and Pat and I are bringing about you know, 20. 
because we are we are sad, sad <laughs> kids. We really, really are. And although the armies are all thousand points, yeah, um, but they're not of the usual bolt action structure in the sense of one, like we said earlier, one tank, one platoon, one blah 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 blah. They all make historical sense. So um, one that comes, Pat's got a lot of Falschenjägers. I mean, mm. shed loads of Falschenjägers. So her Falschenjägers made four bolt action armies. Mm. Um, three that are a platoon and bits plus a stuk, very believable army for 1944, or force unit, and one which is uh, a, a platoon in Hanamags. Again, a very credible, believable sort of army for the period and what, you know, what, what we're doing. And the reason for a thousand points and having these armies made up is so that you can plug people into a big game without having to do a lot of planning and number crunching beforehand. So um, people come in, here's a table that's set for something at, uh, at Nijmegen, uh, counter-attack against American Paris, for example. Okay, well, thousand points for you, thousand points for you, thousand points for you on the German side, thousand points for you, thousand points for you on the American side. And all of the armies, all of the forces are historically properly structured. Mm. You're, you're away, that's it. Off, yeah. off, off you, you're at the races, chaps. Off you yeah. go. Let's see. Let's. I've uh, brought you to the ring. Let's see you dance. You know? <laughs> um, that's 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 kind of approach. So keeping it simple, keeping it accessible, um, but maintaining uh, a, a, a historicity. You know, hmm. um, a degree of it. Like I said earlier, we're, we're not making documentaries. We're playing board games, and it's really not the same thing. But I do want them to make all our projects. I want them to make historical sense hmm. um, otherwise what's the point why aren't we playing dungeons and dragons or chess or something with i don't know starships and whatever other things people have you know <laughs> um yeah well well, well what, what is the point otherwise you know yeah. um now we won't even share things together like you see people playing you know i don't know russians against americans hmm. americans against americans we, we, we just don't really do that hmm. um we, we, we play historical adversaries against one another, but not, not otherwise. Um, there's no reason why you shouldn't particularly in the general sort of a way, if that's what you want to do, lovely. And if you're going to a club to play games or in one of these tournament things, I don't see what else you can do really. That's, yeah. that's fine, I've got nothing against it. It's just, it's not for us and certainly not an event like this. And the whole point is, we're in we're in an Arnhem location. You are in a battle Arnhem, location. Yeah. What else? We're not going to do cowboys and Indians. <laughs> we're really. So although you, I could be tempted in the right circumstances, <laughs> we're not you, going to do cowboys and Indians today. Are you looking out for more games, or um, have you got everything that you need? Um, we're uh, pretty confident there'll be some rapid fire going on. There's a very nice chap, um, Ludwig van Rijk, who has an outrageous Arnhem layout um, for rapid fire, which is about 14 foot long and stretches from landing grounds to the bridges and um, and has all the units made up for rapid fire and is very, very cool. And there's another chap, uh, Mr. Crosswell, who I don't know, but he's coming and he's basically got the same sort of thing in six mil. And he's, uh, if you go on the spit site or on um, Arnhem 21, you'll see some pictures of what he's done. Uh, there's, um, in fact, in particular, 
he's got there's a very well-known photo, aerial photograph of looking down the bridges immediately down the road hmm. the iron road bridge immediately before the battle and you can see the center of the town and so on so there's this black and white photo obviously and a black and white photo of his layout and it takes a second. They are not the same picture, but uh, <laughs> oh wow! So I, I can't wait to see that. Oh, that'd be brilliant. Um, that will be. I'm good. hopeful that there's going to be some people playing battle group yep. as well, and um, and we're going to have a shot with our fire for effect rules. So, and I'm more than happy to have anything else. We can't provide for everything. That's the yep. thing. So, yep. so if you wanted to play. Um, uh, Flames of War, for example. I mean, on previous events, we've had people doing Flames of War, just we've not had any expression of interest for Flames of War. We don't have Flames of War kit, and it's not something we play or know anything about, so we can't really help. But if you want to come and do some Flames of War, we will be very, very happy to have you, mm. and we'll make space. Um, it's not... Uh, we don't think it's an expensive event. Um, obviously, if you're coming from the UK, then you have to fly. Mm. But then... Flights to, flights to Amsterdam are not expensive, and mm. you get a train directly from, from Schiphol Airport to Arnhem, at which point you're at least an eight-minute walk from the venue. You know, you're really no distance at all. Mm. Um, and, you know, you get cheap flights. We've arranged with the hotel, you get, um, I can't remember exactly, I think you get a twin room for 150 a night, yeah. 150 euros, something like that. And I think it's two euros a night tax or something. It's, it's not a lot as these things go. The player fee is um, is seventy quid, but yep. you know you're there three days. You will get other things. We hopefully will have a nice goodies bag. We had really good goodies bag last <laughs> night. Uh, this may depend on on transport at our end. There's a limit. Yeah. There's a limit to how much Pat and I can carry on the plane, and um, and Tom's got a smaller car than he had last time, so there's a limit to how much we can fit into that. That said, I'm really good at packing cars and vans. We'll see. Yeah, but yeah we're, we're, we're hopeful. Um, and all if, the information if, you can want is really on the Iron 21 site uh, or, or on Spit for that matter. And uh, by all means, people can um, email me or well, PM me, whatever it is, hmm. for anything they need to know. And uh, yeah, let's hope it's all going to be good. Well, I, it sounds it sounds like it's going to be an absolutely fantastic event, and um, at the moment, because of work, I can't commit to say whether I'll be free. But if I am, I'll certainly try and, and come along. It, it does sound like a fantastic uh, thing, and if not, I, then I'm sure I'll see you at the uh, the next Claymore when I'm dragging the family around. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, um, we, we were hopeful. Yeah. You know, Early in the year, when we were expecting that you know the shows would be running, we had people, and we had no reason. Mm. Uh, we thought we were going to be taking Pat's latest. Well, no, I was going to say Pat's latest project, but it's no longer her latest project. It's Something else has happened since then. <laughs> what was her latest project, which was uh, she's she's made these enormous, yeah, okay, sizable, shall we say, yeah. collections for the Indian Mutiny, which we play with, believe it or not. A version of bolt action, so we don't use oh, bolt action for World War Two anymore, but we, we 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 use it pretty much untouched for the intimacy, and it works. <laughs> it works really, really well. The only reason we tried it was it we didn't have anything to hand in, in the way of a rule set, and all these figures are painted like, oh, oh, we'll just do it with bolt action. We'll see what happens. <laughs> You know what? This, this is really good. So we've, we've rechristened it as Bolt Action Victoriana. 
Oh, yeah, and, uh, I can see that. I can see that selling. Uh, well, that's what we were going to take to shows um, this, this this year past. And the idea was we'd have a, an open field battle. We'd have a storming of a town battle. And there's something else yet to be decided. As, mm. you know, same figures, same scenery, different, different layouts to go to these different shows. But, of course, the shows didn't happen. So um, um, it might well be... It might well be the thing for Claymore next year. Hmm. However, I said, you know, that was the most recent project. Then there was another project. And, you know, um, oh, God, Jamie Tranter, the infamous JT hmm. miniatures. He's, he's done this range of figures for the Warsaw Uprising. Uprising, like yes. yeah. yeah. But because we don't do things by halves, Pat bought two full sets of them. Um, and then some warlord resistance figures and some foundry resistance figures and some that I have no idea where they've come from. So um, she's got about, I don't know, maybe 80 or 100 or so uh, insurrectionists, shall we say. Mm. But yeah, they're, they're red and white armbands, they're for Warsaw, but they can just as easily be for anywhere else. So that's, that's dominated our gaming for the last month or two. Um, there's some pictures in them on, on the Spit site, and I think I put some on the Bolt Action site as well, which in a way is cheating since we're not, I and mean, we do play Bolt Action a bit, but really we've, 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 we've kind of moved on to our own high speed. High speed, high speed Bolt Action. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, is it, on, you should call, no, it, you should call it self-loading rifle instead of Bolt, bolt yes, Action if it's yes, quicker. Yes, it's, um, Semi-automatic action is a possibility. <laughs> but I think we're I think we're ready to fire for effect. Uh, I I I guess I did just when we when we had a talk before. I wanted to name it for the different rule sets that have that have had an impact on us. You know, yeah. Chain of command. Chain of command. The C. Rapid fire. A. Bolt. A R. Bolt action for an A. And yeah. Panzer grenadier. So C R A D. Crap war game rules, but Pat wouldn't let me. Yeah, we've so, um, gone for fire for effect. But um, I said before, honestly, this is a rule set that almost nobody would like. Lots of people would probably quite like to play it once or twice, mm. and then think, "No, I think I'll go back to um, rapid fire or chain of command or bolt action yeah. or tiddlywinks for that matter." <laughs> Drafts, chess, here we come. <laughs> um, but it's it's what suits us because we're. Sad, pathetic history geeks. It's just how we're made. Uh, well, well, I'm hopeful that this will be a good event. And uh, yeah. you know, if, it's, if it's anything like as good as it was last time, then we'll all need liver transplants. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Did I say that? Did yeah. I say that out loud? You did. Yeah, you did. I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been brilliant talking to you, Chris. Thank you very much for your time today, coming on the podcast. Thanks, and Thanks for having me. And I'm sure we'll meet up in uh, in real life eventually. Yeah. Well. Through a drunken haze across a battlefield, which is probably the best way. Exactly. Thanks a lot, Chris Brown. Well, thanks for having me. Be good. So that was the interview. I hope you really enjoyed that, uh, Dr. Chris Brown. Um, lovely, engaging character. And uh, it was great to get the perspective of... Uh, an historian, a professional historian on wargaming in general. And um, after we'd finished recording, uh, Chris very kindly um, said that he would send me a copy of one of his books, and that is Arnhem, 
Nine Days of Battle uh, by Chris Brown. And um, I'm going to raffle that off as a prize. So, if you want a chance to get a free copy of uh, Chris Brown's Arnhem Nine Days of Battle, I am going to raffle it off to one of my followers on Podbean. So, if you don't follow me on Podbean already, please do so, um, if you fancy a chance of, uh, of winning this book. And if you put a comment at the end of the post on Podbean, I will give you a second entry as well. Just put something along the lines of, I'd love a copy of Chris, Chris's book, and uh, that'll get you a second entry into the draw. And I will uh, choose a winner uh, just before I release... Uh, the next episode, episode 4, which will be released in two weeks' time on on Friday, the 9th of April. Um, so, the guest for the next uh, podcast is a chap called Chris, Chris Ashton. And uh, Chris runs a website called carrying on up the dale and uh, he is a very big proponent of the big battle and he's got lots of lovely collections of figures and they are all in 28 mil Um, not that there's a bias on this podcast i promise and uh, chris has been gaming uh, throughout the COVID, uh, and not through breaking any rules, but he's been doing that um, through um, the likes of Zoom and, and uh, FaceTime and all that sort of stuff, which is a, a little bit beyond my knowledge. Uh, so, uh, in true Yorkshire Gamer style, being miles behind the times, and just as we come into the end of lockdown, I'm going to talk to Chris Ashton about how he has gamed through the lockdown and I think that's going to be an interesting episode and it'll be a good chance to show off some pictures of his lovely collections of figures. So don't forget that, uh, sorry, the the competition to win that free book from Chris Brown. Uh, Get yourself uh, following uh, Yorkshire Gamer on Podbean and see if you can win. Just leave me to say thanks again for listening. See you